This is Phil Mershon, author of Unforgettable, The Art and Science of Creating Memorable Experiences, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others, as one of the top marketing podcasts. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. All right, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Phil Mershon to talk about his book, Unforgettable, The Art and Science of Creating Memorable Experiences, published by Morgan James. Have you ever experienced an event that was so incredible it felt like time had stopped? With close to 30 years of expertise in organizing events, including Social Media Marketing World, the most significant event in the social media marketing industry since 2013, church events, training events for nonprofits, and one of the largest privately held companies in the world, Coke Industries, Phil has mastered the recipe for hosting unforgettable events. Leveraging his extensive experience with virtual, hybrid, and in-person events, he's organized events for up to 5,000 people. As a result, he's developed an inspirational model that regularly receives reviews like best conference ever. And interesting facts, he's a Divinity School graduate and a jazz saxophonist. Phil! Congratulations on Unforgettable, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me on. I'm I'm inspired to listen to this guy talk that you just uh, introduced. Yeah, he's awesome, <laughs> and I've known about him for years. And uh, in fact, I, when I found out a little uh, secret Marketing Book Podcast hack, I will hop on Amazon, and sometimes I'll find out about books coming out long before. And I saw, oh man, Phil, oh, I gotta I gotta try and get on that guy's radar screen. And fortunately, I have. And the book is Unforgettable, and this is Unforgettable, The Art and Science of Creating Memorable Experiences. Just for those listeners that are uh, uh, romance novel people, this is not Unforgettable, a small-town, second-chance sports romance by Melanie Harlow, just so people aren't confused. And also, I I don't know if anyone knows this, I also host a podcast where I interview authors of uh, romance novels. So, Phil, you're a graduate of Divinity School, and I can think of no other guest of the over 300 authors who have been on the show whose reputation will probably take a bigger hit by being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast (laughs) than you, Phil. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure it's going to only be a a benefit and a blessing, so thanks for having me. (laughs) Well, you know, it's funny. I have a friend, and this is real. Everything else I say is probably, you know, suspect, but this is true. I have a friend who was a minister, and sadly, he got divorced years ago, so he left the ministry and you know stopped doing that. And he went into advertising, and the joke is that he did that because that was more scandalous than getting divorced. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Probably so. But ministers can be great salespeople if they're effective in evangelism. So, well, my friend was very successful in the in the ad business. So, now you are in the Wichita area, is that right? I am. 
Have you ever met the Wichita lineman? The Wichita lineman is still on the line. I'm afraid I have not, but of course we're known for that among many other things. <laughs> Okay, I was just wondering because uh, that's the first thing I think of. So your book has been endorsed by so many big, big hitters, including a few that I have had the honor of interviewing, including Jesse Cole from the Savannah Bananas, uh, Jay Bear, Joel Kamm, Shep Hyken, Dan Gingas, uh, Mark Schaefer, who is also the king of the Marketing Book Podcast. He probably already told you that. And... I wanted to read some of the blurbs from uh, a few of them. And when they found out I was going to do that, they said, no, they want to do it. So let's hear from Mark Schaefer. And this is actually different from his endorsement because he wanted to give you something new and unforgettable. Hi, this is Mark Schaefer. And when it comes to events and Phil Mershon, I probably know Phil just about better than anybody. We've worked together for 10 years, and we've always challenged each other to up our game on our events, and Phil has always come through. So I'm excited about Phil's book. I can't recommend it highly enough. And don't, otherwise, don't believe a word Mark Schaefer says about me. But wait, there's more, Phil Mershon. Another big hitter, one of my favorites, is this is from Shep Hyken. Most recently, a guest about his book, I'll Be Back. I know from experience, Phil Mershon practices what he preaches, exactly how to create an amazing experience. Combining customer service with a keen eye for details, Phil produces events that gets attendees and speakers saying, I'll be back. If you want to create memorable events, read Unforgettable. Learn from a master. But wait, there's more, Phil Mershon. Jay Bear, most recently a guest to talk about his book, uh, The Time to Win, had this to say. Of the more than 1,000 events I've attended, I remember those planned by Phil Mershon the most. Do not plan an event without reading this brilliant book. And finally, the forward is written by none other than Scott McCain, who, as we record this, his episode about the ultimate customer experience published today. And I just wanted to play this one excerpt from his forward. After 3,000 professional presentations worldwide to audiences as large as 20,000, I have a single regret. I wish every meeting professional could have read Unforgettable. It's the best book in the history of event planning. Everything those guys said is true. And I tell you what, Phil Mershon, this week I was participating in an event in Chicago telling all the event organizers about this book, and they are excited to read it. And, you know, there was a book on the show recently by Josh Burnoff, Build a Better Business Book, and it reminded me of how much goes into writing these books. I was familiar with it, but uh, all the aspects, not just writing the book, but all the promotion and the research and so forth. And reading your book reminded me of just how difficult... <laughs> events are. And I think it's one of the most stressful jobs out there. Well, it is. It's actually been documented to be one of the five most stressful jobs on the planet. And uh, I understand why, like, especially in the midst of it, if you don't have the ability to multitask and handle cr criticism and adjust to plans when things don't go the way you thought, it's going to drive you crazy. Yes. And so it seems like some of the best event planners are Pretty cool people, 
they don't get stressed out, and it's almost like they always know something's going to go wrong, and plan for that. So let me quote from page two of the book, and then we can get into this. You write, in this book, I'm going to show you how to create events so memorable that they are unforgettable. What if your event could be on the highlight reel of the year for your attendees? Even better, what if after five years, your attendees started referencing your event as one of the key pivot moments in their life or career? In a sea of ordinary events, it's possible to create extraordinary, unforgettable events. I'd like to show you some of the ingredients I believe are necessary and some of the mistakes many events make that unwittingly undermine their success. It's fairly easy to put together an event if you have an audience. It's harder to create a profitable event that people enjoy. It's really hard to create a transformational event that people rave about. But it doesn't have to be as hard as you think if you understand a few simple dynamics. And let me just jump back to the end of the uh, introduction. You write, I've taken my 30,000 plus hours and lessons I've learned from many friends, books, and sessions and compiled it into 16 chapters. I hope that in a few hours, you'll be able to avoid many of the mistakes I've made and learn to focus on the things that cause an event to truly create lasting transformation. So you write that people attend events for the first time based on the promises of learning networking, and fun experiences. But they come back because they were changed. And you recently asked your online community, what makes an event boring? (laughs) What were some of their responses? You know, it's interesting. They said things like, you know, bad coffee or no coffee. Standing in lines was a common theme, whether it's standing in line for the bathroom, standing in line to get food, standing in line to get checked in. Um, and then there's a lot of it had to do with the speakers. Are the speakers reading their slides? Are their slides kind of uninspiring? Do they not know how to keep an audience engaged? Those were some of the things. It was lines and the speakers it had to do with food and coffee, like if it was bad food um, and bad coffee. It's like some of them that were just really basic stuff, right? Yeah, long presentations and too much selling. Oh, too much selling for sure. Yeah. There's a long list here, and I think I've been to uh, a few events, not the one this week, but uh, several where I've seen all this, and I, I'm really kind of sad <laughs> for the event organizers that they, they missed that. So your book is broken into three primary sections, and it's uh, the first is defining success, and the second is the primary ingredients uh, when you know, creating these event experiences, and the third is how to create your secret recipe, and this book looks so good, it's unforgettable. <laughs> That's what you are. <laughs> now, you tie the book together with analogies to baking bread. Now, mm-hmm. I don't know how to bake bread, but I love to eat bread, despite what Fat Bastard reminds us of. Cobs are the enemy. So let's, <laughs> let's talk about defining success from the first section. And as Phil and I talk, you're going to hear some references to ingredients and baking bread. So that's why I wanted to mention that. It was, it was a great thread that you pull the whole book together. And uh, you write that an unforgettable experience results when it's Memorable, meaningful, and momentous. Three M's. Memorable, meaningful, and momentous. Now, those three words probably mean something to every (laughs) listener, and it means different things. So 
if you would, explain to us what you mean by memorable, meaningful, and, and momentous. So you could say that unforgettable and memorable are the same thing, but I would say unforgettable is like memorable on steroids. But when I talk about memorable, it's things that are going to stand the test of time, things that are going to grab your attention. So it might be something that you're just not expecting. You know, Savannah Bananas, you already mentioned Jesse Cole earlier. They are the best at this that I know of, where they're doing things on a baseball field you've never seen done before. It's not like they're unusual things by themselves, but when you see it at a baseball game, it's like, whoa, what are they doing? I've never seen that done quite that way before. That's going to be memorable. So at our conference, um, we've put together four or five times, we've had a musical parody. You don't go to a marketing conference expecting to see a musical breakout on stage, but we did that. And so that's going to grab people's attention. But also when you look at something that's memorable, it's, it's attaching all of the senses. Um, many conferences and events don't pay attention to the senses outside of the visual and audio. You have to do those two um, if it's a learning event, because that's what we do. But if you can also bring in the tactile, the olfactory senses and the taste buds, and do it in a smart, strategic way, now you're getting something that's going to be much more memorable and much more intentional. So that's part of what I mean by memorable. And it's, it's attacking, um, oh gosh, I'm forgetting the guy's name, but it's, I think it's Effing Haas is the German psychologist who discovered that 90% of what we learn at an event is going to be forgotten within the first 30 days. And this is like all event planners, all of you who are organizing events, that's got to get your attention. Because that means your ROI, if you don't do something about this, the ROI is going to be terrible. Now, the good news is we can do things to increase those odds by making it stick in people's minds, by doing things that's going to say, you know what? I remember being at that event and they did this and then this conversation happened. Oh, yeah, I still need to go do that or I need to apply that or that was this transformational moment. So that's memorable. Meaningful is looking at the personal journey. You know, we want to hear people say they had an aha moment at an event, right? You want this moment where you're, you're inspired by a new idea or, wow, that's, that's exactly the thing that I've been looking for. Or, you know, something happens in a conversation that might be a serendipitous moment where you're realizing all your life, you've been looking for this one person, this one conversation, this one idea, and it happened at this particular event. That's where it becomes meaningful. But I lay out that we need to think about the journey, the journey that people are on when they're coming to an event, which starts you know, back at their desk or wherever they were when they first bought the ticket, and it goes all the way through the journey, getting ready for the conference, being at the conference, and even when they go, go back home and start applying things that they learned at your event. So meaningful has to do with that personal journey and helping people find that significant moment, those significant ideas they're going to bring about change. And the momentous um, leans on the work of um, Chip and Dan Heath. You maybe know the book, The Power of Moments. Mm -hmm. Not sure if you've interviewed those guys. You should. Uh, Um, I've invited them. (laughs) Yes. Well, they should be on this show if you guys are listening. And if if anybody knows them, I'd love to meet them, but they need to be on this show for sure. Well, thank you. Um, But their work in studying why do some moments stand out versus others? You know, they famously quoted, not all moments are created equally. And, you know, of course, time every second is the same, but some moments stand the test and some, you know, stand out to us more than others. I like to say not all moments are remembered equally. So now we're looking at, okay, what moments really matter? 
You know, in their book, they talk about a Disney experience where some moments are really great, you know, like the fireworks show or the parade or your favorite ride or meeting your favorite guest. And then some moments you would rather forget, like having to stand in line or pay too much for a Coke or, you know, deal with your sweaty, hot kids who are crying in the middle of the day. And you'd rather not be out there in the humidity tube. But when you put it together smart, those moments that are great will actually outweigh all the negative things, even though on average, it shouldn't do that. And so that using that same mindset, we can know which moments do we need to put more effort into and which ones, because we, we can't, we honestly can't as event planners architect every moment. It's just impossible. There's too many things that happen and there's, there's a lot of things that are outside of our control. So we try to pay attention to what are those moments that are going to make the biggest difference on someone's journey. Let's make sure we mitigate problems where it could be derail things, but let's also lean into the best experiences we have. And when we do that, those negative things will be forgotten more or less, especially if we focus on the first impressions. So you set the tone right with a first impression. If you have a great closing moment and then you've got a few peak moments in between, um, you're going to end up with a really great event and people probably won't be talking about the negative stuff too much because they will have had such a profound experience at your event. You know, what's interesting to me when reading the book is that I've been to events. Most of them are good, but there have been some where I could tell they never gave any thought to entire chapters (laughs) of your book. And what's more important is if they would just think about it and maybe take a stab at trying it, they would, they would be more successful than they realize. So you don't have to do this perfectly. As I often say, it's like the, when you and your friend are being chased by a bear, you don't have to be faster than the bear. You just have to be faster than your friend. And if you're doing an event, you try some of these things, it'll really make a big impact. So I'm going to jump to uh, page 18 and ask you to explain this. You write that in the military, everyone must endure boot camp. At a conference, retreat, or workshop, people usually have the option to leave (laughs) or disengage. We should approach this more like great storytellers. Explain what you mean there. So, you know, great storytellers know how to bring you into a story and keep you engaged. You know, whether you're watching a great movie coming out of Hollywood, you're reading a great book, They know how to capture your attention early, so hook you in with some kind of initial thing and help you feel like you're part of the story. The best storytellers know how to make you feel like you're in the scene with them, and you've got a vested interest in figuring out what happens. And if they put a cliffhanger in there somewhere, you want to bring closure to it. So that's why Netflix does so well is because they've got you invested. They put the cliffhanger in there, and they say, come back next week or keep binging, you know, depending on how it's set up. So I think um, we don't have the benefit of a boot camp where if you don't finish this, you don't get to go to the next step. I mean, most events. Now, some do, if it's a credentialing event, that's a whole different deal. But I'm, I'm speaking to those events where people signed up voluntarily and they're staying voluntarily. And so in those cases, then we've got to think about how do we keep them engaged and how do we anticipate those places where they might leave. So changing metaphors here for a minute from storytelling to a merry-go-round. The merry-go-round effect is something that I think event planners also have to think about when that is this. When you're on a merry-go-round and it's going the right speed and where you're having a great ride, you want to stay on for a long time. It's like it's a thrill. But at some point in time, it becomes boring 
and it makes you want to get off because it goes too slow or the thrill is gone or it gets going too fast and you're feeling sick to your stomach or you're thrown against the middle. And so what we need to do as event organizers is keep the ride moving at a speed where people want to stay on. They mm-hmm. are getting something out of it. And we know when they might get tempted to get off and what, what's going to cause them to get off and not get back on the ride. We want to make it as easy as possible to get back on. It's not like people don't need to take a break. Of course they do. If we expect someone's going to show up at six in the morning and stay till midnight, they're going to be taking breaks. So how do we, back to storytelling, keep the story moving in such a way that they're really interested and thinking there's something more here that I want to get. And I think there's a lot of different ways that we can do that. And we can get into some of the specifics um, along the way, but that's, that's a lot of what I meant there. Yes, let me add to that from page 168. The merry-go-round principle says that events try to give you a memorable ride, but if things move too slowly, you'll want to get off. If it moves too quickly, you'll be given a memorable ride, but it will make you sick. The perfect merry-go-round ride gives you a thrill without throwing you off or making you sick. It's similar to an ideal event or restaurant experience. So, Phil, let's talk about our enemies. Hello, Newman. Talk about the successful event enemies as well as their better opposites, which is you've also got it on a great chart on page 41. Know thy enemies. Yes. So the enemies that I've identified, and I'm glad to have people tell me there's more, but I think these are the ones that I've seen most often. Well, if you could start with these, that would be a fantastic start. Oh, they will. Yeah. And it (laughs) forms the word dry since we're using the baking analogy that seemed to make sense. So dried bread, unless you're a bird or you're putting croutons on a salad, most of us don't like dried out bread, right? So dried spells dullness, resistance, isolation, exhaustion, and distraction. And I think you can probably tell what some of these mean. Dullness, obviously we're talking about boredom, something that's going to put you to sleep or just not inspire you. Resistance though is referring to um, someone's had a bad experience or they've heard something about the event and they're like suspect. And so there's, they've got their arms crossed and they're kind of watching suspiciously. Um, they're, they're not sure they want to be changed. They're not sure they really want to fully enter in. So they're waiting for you to prove yourself. Isolations, the tendency that people have when they show up somewhere and they don't know anybody to stay by themselves. Um, you know, stay on their phone, protect themselves because they're, again, they're not sure if their people are here. Um, They're feeling like they're not part of the community. Exhaustion could be just that physical exhaustion, but it also could be the overwhelm that comes when there's too much information. Um, I talk in the book about my experience at one very large conference where we go through check-in and they hand us a book and it's 76 pages long, which is the program with all kinds of advertising. And it was absolutely (laughs) overwhelming. And it's like, man, I wish I'd have had this a week in advance to devour it. I have no idea where to go. Do you know what I did, Douglas? (laughs) I went back to my room and took a nap. (laughs) And and it's worse because I had to walk a mile to get back to my room, but that's Uh, how overwhelmed I was. Yeah. this is insane. And then the, the closing D, distraction, I think you can probably anticipate, but it's not only are people distracted by social media, by what's going on in their device, but if you, if you create cognitive dissonance at your event by putting things on the screens that are in conflict to what's happening on the stage, or your color scheme is disruptive, or you don't have the right music because you've totally misunderstood who your audience is, all those things can be distracting. 
Like you've, you've probably been in the restaurant before Douglas, where, you know, a song comes on the radio and you might've been in this really deep conversation, but then you hear this really familiar song and instantly your mind goes to the song. It reminds you of that date you had that went wrong or went right or whatever the case might be. And all of a sudden you're not in the conversation anymore. And that's what happens at events so often is like, well, you know, you know that I'm a pastor by training. It'll happen in a church service where a pastor is getting ready to bring home this really great um, closing point, and he makes reference to food, and everyone starts thinking about lunch, and they miss his closing point because he inadvertently said something that took their stomachs out of the moment, and then their minds went out of the moment, and all of a sudden, whatever point he wanted to make is lost. And it's just, it's kind of a deflating experience. Like, uh, they're not here with me anymore. And I think that is what happens so often at events. Like, it's not that there's so many bad events in the world. Like, unforgettably bad, we know we want to avoid. Like, uh, we all know that's, we don't want those. It's those 80% or more in the middle that are the, they're just forgettable. And I think they become forgettable because we do some of these small little things that hurt ourselves. And those are, those are the five enemies that I've discovered. Uh, speaking of distraction, can you tell the story about Anne Hanley that was at the end of the book? What she said, I think she was at Social Media Marketing World, right? She was, yeah. Um, it was, I don't remember what year it was, but she sent a post out after our conference and said, sorry to not be present online. I spent the last three days being in person. I forget how she said it. You probably have the quote in front of you. Uh, but I was, I was so engaged in the real life conversations that I was having that I forgot to post anything online. <laughs> right. That's what you want to happen. We want people to be that engaged at our events that they forget. I actually did that recently, Douglas, at a, a, a 40th class reunion from my high school. I was so engaged in all the conversations that I left that evening and realized I only took one picture. Oh. I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> I guess that's good, but I wish that I had taken some pictures and no one else got me in very many either. Well, this is like, well, there's that. That is good. Oh, I just found it. It's, she said uh, what you basically said. Sorry for being absent the last three days. I was at a social media conference and became so immersed in the conversations and experiences that I forgot to post. Boy, if that's not an endorsement on your uh, conference website, it should be. That's how good it is. So, Phil, before we jump into the uh, successful ingredients, can you give us a bit more of the backstory about how you came up with this metaphor? Yeah. Well, it actually started for years I taught using the analogy of a restaurant because a restaurant experience is similar to an event experience in that every restaurant that's a sit-down meal has a pretty similar format of what happens. You might get valet parking, you might not, but you're greeted at the door. You have a host or hostess who takes your name down and they seat you. They bring you the menus. They bring you your water. They take your, your order. They bring you your food. They keep checking on you. They say, do you want dessert? They bring you your check. You pay. They might greet you when you leave. They might not. You know, it's, There's some variabilities in there. That's true of a one-star and a five-star restaurant. The difference is how each one of those things are done. And I've been at a Ritz-Carlton five-star and I've been in lots of greasy holes um, all over the world. And it's a pretty similar format. It's the details that matter. So that's kind of like the background. But then I started thinking about, 
baking bread is a great analogy for making an event in this way. If you give a 12-year-old kid a recipe for baking bread and a little bit of oversight, um, that they're going to be able to bake an edible loaf of bread with the four main ingredients, which are flour, water, salt, and yeast. And put those together in the right temperature of oven for the right amount of time. Let the yeast rise the right amount of time, and it'll come out edible. It may not be great, but it will serve the purpose of feeding your family. Um, And the same thing is true about events. There are just a few basic ingredients that every event has in common. And, you know, you break it down to the core ingredients. They're all kind of the same in certain ways. Um, It's not those ingredients that matter. It's how you address those ingredients and how you put them together, the details. And just like the baker, you know, with 30,000 hours or 10,000 hours of skill, they're starting to be able to do things with bread that a junior baker just can't do because it takes a long time to perfect the craft. And master event organizers are the same way. Like we've spent a long time making the mistakes (laughs) that you talked about earlier. Like you got to try stuff and make some mistakes to learn it. But hopefully, you know, my book and others like it will help you avoid some of those mistakes or at least learn some of the things that we've learned. Well, let's start with what you call your main ingredient, content that produces dough, which sounds like one of them double entendres to me. You write that your goal is to produce the right content that leads to meaningful conversations so you can set the stage for the conversion you seek. But then you write that that sentence would have bothered you early in your days. Why is that? Well, you know, I am not a sales guy. And so anything that sounds like I'm trying to convert someone raises all my pricklies. I'm not a sales guy, said the uh, Divinity School grad, but go ahead. (laughs) Well, that's a different kind of sales. Yes. Um, And I'm I'm not a great evangelist because I'm not a good salesperson. So I I like to build people up and encourage them and give people space. So, but I realized that every conversation, everything we do is actually leading people to make a decision. If we're not allowing them to make a decision, we're doing them a disservice. Um, Now, the forced conversions, you know, the ones where they don't let you leave until they guilt you into making a decision, I do not like those experiences. (laughs) Like a timeshare uh, pitch? Yeah, it's like a timeshare pitch or they make you feel like there's something wrong with you if you don't sign up for this $24,000 program that you don't have the money to do, but they're, they're there to help you with getting a loan so you can afford to buy something you can't really afford. Like, or all those, those. Um, <laughs> I, I get every week, I get all these uh, direct mail pieces inviting me to the, what looks like these delicious steak dinners. And at some point, <laughs> I'm right. going to start going on to them, but it's like, no, I don't, <laughs> I think it would just be torture. Oh yeah. They're going to be pushing you hard. Like, Hey, we paid for your steak dinner. We're now sign up for our retirement services. Cause <laughs> right. I get those too. Right. <laughs> yes. So yeah, that's, that's what I meant by that. It's, um, But the content itself, you know, and we're obviously talking about educational events. If you're doing a different kind of event that's not educational, content is not necessarily your main ingredient anymore. So, um, but with that in mind, I think most of us are in the content business. We're trying to teach people something, give them access to information or skills that they don't currently have. So that's your main ingredient. Yeah, I can't think of an event that wouldn't have content in some form. I guess that's the main ingredient. 
I, a trade show might be a good exception. Oh, like okay. CES, and now you're there to see the newest things okay. that have come out. Even in that situation, though, you are there to learn, but you're not there to learn a new skill. You're learn, there to learn what's the newest innovation within our industry. So it's a little bit different uh, okay. product. That's good. Yeah. That's fair. That's fair. So another question is, uh, you write that too many events are like a brick wall without mortar. Mm. <laughs> what is mortar at events? Well, it's not the stuff you use to blow things up. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I guess you knew I was in the military. So that's what I, I did. And I had to throw in at least one dad joke because you, you gave me permission. Yes. Thank you. And uh, and apologies to the listener, but this is turning into a dad uh, joke support group, uh, particularly if you'd heard what we were saying before the interview, which we've spared most of you from. So please, Phil, go ahead. Yeah, my new nonprofit, dadjokesanonymous.com, <laughs> does not exist. Um, so by that, I mean this. So I live in Kansas where we have lots of wind. If you built a wall of bricks and there was no mortar, meaning the cement um, the adhesive that holds the bricks together, it's going to get blown over in a tornado or a high wind. And yet we know that like, you know, no one, no one adores a brick wall saying, man, that mortar is so beautiful. Usually. I mean, there is ornate mortar that exists, you know, when they're trying to create really pretty walls, but in general, it's a substance that's its only goal is to hold the wall together for as long as possible the Romans had it mastered. Some of those walls are still standing, right? Mm -hmm. And they had really good mortar. <clears throat> so, but here's the problem is a lot of events don't think about the mortar. And what that means is we put all of our attention and this isn't, this part is not wrong. We sh probably should put most of our attention here. We're putting our attention on what's the content. What are those main building blocks? I call them bricks. What are the what are the pieces of content? Who are the speakers going to be, and what are they talking about? That's what you have to sell. Like that is what's on your marketing page on your website. You're not putting mortar on the website. No one's buying mortar. They're buying the bricks. But if you don't have the mortar and they come to the event, then you're going to have a very choppy experience. First, we're going to have Jay Bear talking about hug your haters. And then we're going to have Joe Polizzi talking about Content Inc. And those are all good. I've been to the events that do this, but what's happening in between? That's the mortar. How are these things being connected together? So if we don't put thought into how we're connecting things together, and that, by this, the mortar, I'm talking about the connecting material. Um, a lot of times it's your MC. You know, a, a smart, a good MC is going to know how to connect Jay Bear to Joe Polizzi to Douglas Burdett um, and make that a overall experience instead of just saying, here's content A, here's content B, here's content C. There's more of a cohesive experience, but it's not just what an MC does. That is important, but it's also looking at the whole schedule. So are we forcing people? <clears throat> to go A, B, C, D, E, F, G with no breaks in between, which I've been to these events. You probably have two <laughs> where you go from eight till 12 and it's just continuous content for four hours. And they think this is a good idea. No bathroom breaks, no bio breaks whatsoever. Get up if you need to, but the pressure is you can't because you're in the middle of a row of 20 people and it'd be really awkward to get up. And you're sitting here with a middle-aged bladder saying, I can't make it. <laughs> right. And there will I, be breaks. <laughs> it's just well, not part of the schedule. Well, I, I spoke at one of these events where they were doing that and I got up and I was like number three or four in a row. 
And I got up and said, I can see it in your eyes. And if it's not in your eyes, it's in mine. Um, we are taking an unscheduled bio break right now. Please feel free to get up and come back. You'll thank me later. Um, <laughs> Brilliant. I, I, I took charge. I said, you know, I didn't agree with the event organizer's decision. I'm like, I know they have to go because I have to go. And even if they don't, they'll be glad to stand up for a minute. Yes. So, oh, that's so a that's, good one. That's what I mean by the brick and mortar. So it's thinking about how do things connect together. And obviously your journey and my journey at an event are different, but it's also like what's happening in the hallways. You know, if, if you've got multiple rooms at your event, you know, what's happening in the hallways as people are walking back and forth? Is it conducive to conversations? Mm -hmm. um, are they going to be able to get to the bathroom? Is there time to get to the bathroom? Is there time to go grab a cup of coffee? Is there time for them to have a conversation? Or are you forcing them to race from one end of the building to the other and there's not really enough time to get there? Um, it's thinking about that overall experience. So the mortar is what's holding everything together. Um, it's, it's just, it's a, an attention to detail, really. Yeah. One other thing from the uh, content chapter, I want to quote from page 94, you write, entire books have been written on the power of storytelling. In fact, this is the primary way we received our oral history for generations. Humans love a good story and are far more likely to remember a story than a principle. But then you go on to write that this truth bothers many of your speaker and pastor friends. I was surprised by that. Explain what you mean. Well, you know, when I was a pastor, and even when I give presentations, we put a lot of time into thinking about clever ways to help people remember the things that we're talking about. And we've got all these really great transformational principles and ideas that we think are super important. But if you were to ask people, you know, if they go to a church service or they go to a conference to say, what did Phil talk about? they're far more likely to remember the stories I told. And maybe the stories will remind them of something I taught, but they're very unlikely to remember my, my cool acronym or acrostic that I came up with. Um, I, I literally gave a sermon one time where I gave them a matrix, a, a three by three matrix to remember what oh, I said. Right. I, yeah. I can guarantee you they remember that I gave them a matrix and tell that story, but they have no idea what was in it. I don't remember what was in it. <laughs> yeah, it probably brought to mind the movie. Yeah, well, that wasn't out yet, but... <laughs> oh, okay, okay. It's been a little while. Interesting. So let's talk about one of the other many, many ingredients that are covered in your book, which is networking. And when I say networking, I don't mean this kind of networking. Hi, Eric Stratton, Rush Chairman. Damn glad to meet you. Hey, Eric Stratton, Rush Chairman. Damn glad to meet you. Hey, Eric Stratton, Rush Chairman. Damn glad to meet you. Hi, Eric Stratton, Rush Chairman. Damn glad to meet you. Hi, that was Eric Stratton, Rush Chairman. He was damn glad to meet you. Sorry, that's one of the greatest films in the American film archive, Animal House. So <laughs> explain why relationships matter so much to an event, perhaps more than some event organizers realize? Well, look at it this way. If, if people just want the content that you're selling, they can stay home. They can watch it online. Most of the things that speakers are saying at your event is available through YouTube or podcast or somewhere online. So what they're coming for are the conversations, the ability to actually talk to that speaker. It's for the connections that they can make with peers in the industry. And it's for the experiences they can have at an event that they can't have at home. And so 
All those things that I just said have to do with people. They want to be with people. And then, you know, like in my industry, social media marketers, most of them work in companies where there's no one else like them. And, you know, probably everybody in, who's in your audience here works in an industry where the people that they work with every day don't understand all the issues that they're facing. So when you go to a conference like, oh, I found my people, you know, these mm-hmm. are my people. I want to build relationships with them. So I've got someone to call. So when you go to a conference, um, the, the learning is important and it's valuable. The learning goes deeper when you can have conversations with the right people who are there. And so that's why I think connections are so important. It usually doesn't take more than a few good, meaningful connections at a conference for it to feel valuable to people. Um, But we as event organizers have to work hard to help make those connections as likely as possible. It's impossible to perfectly plan that, but it is possible to set the conditions for those connections. We'll talk about that. What are some of the conditions that uh, you can do to uh, promote that? Well, I think or the, kill it. <laughs> yeah, right. I think one, well, if, let's kill it first. Don't let people ever talk to each other before they show up at the event. You don't, don't make anything possible for them to talk about it. No, no Facebook group, no, no mobile app, um, no way for them to have any idea who else is coming. Yes. And then don't give them name badges when they show up. <laughs> oh um, God, you got to be kidding. You've I'm, been to events where they don't have badges. I actually have. I've been to events where they thought it was a bad idea to have name badges. I've been to events where they don't let you put your title or your company on it because they just want you to be people. I think that's actually kind of cool because it lets everybody be on equal footing. So let's stop killing it. You know, you do want people as much as possible to connect before they show up. So mm-hmm. the higher percent of people that you can get connecting before they show up, the better it's going to be for your event because people are going to show up and have plans. You know, if, if your events like mine, where we've got 70% or more of the people coming who've never been before, um, then those 70% want to feel comfortable. And in my industry, at least 50% of people are introverted. Um, and you know, I know that's different from being outgoing, but they do tend to go together. So if they show up, they don't have plans, they don't know anybody, then they're going to fall into that isolated trap and we have to work harder. So if we can help them get connected before they show through whatever kind of community that you choose to use, we use Facebook because we're a social media company. It has its downsides, but it, it works. It's free. Um, but if you know your audience isn't on Facebook, it might be smart to use an app that you can build a private community. Like I know companies who want a a private community that's not on any kind of social media platform. Like you have to choose where, but have something where people can start connecting and making some plans. Like if you know three people or two people when you're showing up and you've already got plans to meet up with one or two people, your chances of a successful event go way up. I don't have any stats on it, but um, someone should help me do some research on that. But I know it goes up dramatically because now you're feeling like, okay, these are already my people. I've already found people like me. And then you're going to be more willing to step out and meet more people. And, you know, the truth is if we get 50% of an audience to start connecting before they show up, that's good. But if those 50% are connected, they're going to be way more likely to reach over to their neighbor and, and say hi, 
my name is Eric Stratton. <laughs> um, <laughs> nice to meet you. Um, it's you know, damn gonna, glad to meet you. Right. <laughs> damn, oh, damn glad to meet you. Yeah, exactly. They're gonna, they will be willing to do that. And I think if you can create the culture where people feel like they're welcome and it's comfortable to meet anybody and everybody, there's no like caste system. Oh, I'm too good for you. I've been in this industry for 15 years and you're a newbie. Um, you know, it's, it's, we all feel like we belong. Yeah. And I found that, uh, at least for me, when I have connected with somebody beforehand, I know they're going to be there. We make a point of trying to meet up. Exactly. Let's talk about uh, culture, which is, you know, again, one of these things that's not, maybe not always uh, well understood, but I wanted to touch on it. You wrote, you quoted uh, David Cummings, co-founder of Pardot. He yes. wrote, corporate culture is the only sustainable competitive advantage that is completely within the control of the business owner. And you write that event culture can be cultivated and influenced through a number of small but strategic decisions and action. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, I think event culture is something that has not been studied a lot. And that's probably because it's hard to harder to define because it emerges and then it disappears. But it is a reflection of some of those decisions that we make as event organizers. Like it's going to be a reflection of how do we operate as a business? Like for us, Social Media Examiner, but you, your business, there's ways that you go about doing things that will either on you know purposefully or unpurposefully affect how people experience your event. So if you're really strong on customer service and making people feel welcome and that's just normal for you, People will pick up on that. If you're a lot more about efficiency and making sure things are done correctly, but maybe not so warm in your demeanor, people will pick up on that. And that may be right or wrong. It's or that may not be right or wrong. That may just be who you are, the kinds of speakers that you bring. So if all of your speakers are the types of people who fly in the morning they speak and leave as soon as they're done that has a profound effect on the culture of your event. <laughs> Wiping People, their hands with hand sanitizer. <laughs> wearing a mask the whole time. Right. <laughs> Not that anybody ever would do that. Those are some of the small little decisions. It's, it's you know, culture is affected by color. It's affected by the way that we use space. You know, so people will pick up on the culture of your event through a lot of those, um, those visual, nonverbal signals that they pick up on as soon as they arrive. Like, are there people greeting them as soon as they come in or do they have to walk half a mile before they yes. ever see anyone? You know, do, are they left on their own to figure out everything or are there people there to help them? All those little things affect the cultural experience. And, you know, we've had people walk away from our event and say things like, you know, the culture of this event was amazing. I'm not sure quite what it was, but it's different than any other conference I've been to. And, you know, it's, it's the sum of a lot of little things. And certainly that person's experience was probably different than somebody else's because you can't control the individual experience um, fully. But they were picking up on the fact that we want it to be a very accessible um, culture where people can go up and talk to anybody and feel like they belong in the conversation. And so our staff are trained on how to open up the circle. Mm -hmm. Chris Brogan taught us this, um, where whenever he's in a circle, he always leaves a spot in the circle and he'll turn and invite somebody in and fairly quickly include them in the conversation and say, hey, Douglas, what do you think about this? So now all of a sudden, you're respected by a respected person 
um, and you're brought into it. And it, the more that happens, it has a profound effect on the way everybody behaves within the culture. And that's really at its essence. Culture is, is a sum of all the small little behaviors that are encouraged or discouraged within, um, whether it's a business or an event. I found that chapter very interesting. It's a number of small but strategic decisions and actions. And I have to laugh, Phil Mershon, because I was once at a a corporate event and they had a speaker, an author, and the word had gone out to the employees of don't ask him any questions, don't don't talk to him. Mm. <laughs> I just thought, okay, all right. And when I heard that, I actually made a point of going up and talking to him and it really bothered him. So wow. anyway. <laughs> wow. That's interesting. Yeah, Why would you bring him if he's not willing to answer? Questions? I don't know. I, maybe they, maybe that was kind of the what they had said. Like he doesn't want to talk to a lot of people, and he came in, he came out right away. So anyway, they they, they do exist. All right, I'll tell you this: we've got a speaker that has to do that for an event we're planning. And I was at first like, "Why are we doing that? That's not our culture. We want speakers who at least stick around for a day." But in this case, they were the right expert, and the only way to get them was to allow them to do this. They're like, "Well, we'll make the best of it." But that's you know, out of sixty speakers, that's only one. Right. So, I was going to say, "Oh, was it Solomon Rushdie?" No, it's not, and it's not even someone who's world famous. It's just they're. Their schedule, that was the only way for oh, it to work. Well, that's one yeah. thing if it's the schedule, you know, and you're. Yeah. 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 It's not that they were feel like they were too good. Right. It was <laughs> that, hey, I'm already speaking at another event. I would really like to be at your way, yours too. Is there any way we can make this work? And so that's what they came up with. I'm like, okay, well, as long as that's not what everybody's doing, because, you know, people come to our event looking forward to the chance to have conversations. You know, you quoted Mark Schaefer earlier and he's famous when he comes to our conference, like he'll stay for all three days and he'll just hang out when he's not talking and he'll, he's available for conversations. He creates meetups for people who are there. He very much just becomes part of the community and Anne Handley is the same way. That's why she said what she did is like, she's there to be with the people and she wants to connect and you want your speaker's doing that, and that models what you want everybody to do. So, Yeah, Mark Schaefer, he'll talk to anybody. I mean, I've been able to interview him uh, nine times. So, you know, can you imagine what it's like having to be interviewed by me <laughs> nine times? Uh, he's, a a very he's a very patient guy. Hey, there's just two other things I wanted to ask you about that, that culture part. Again, I'm fascinated by that. Talk about how the physical space of an event can have a – dramatic impact uh, on the culture that emerges. Well, you saw that I talked a little bit about proximity and proximics is a whole mm -hmm. study of how people behave in different sizes of groups. So the layout of physical space is very culturally driven and that's like broader culture. Like here in Western American culture, we have a different sense of space than in say a Latino culture or European culture or somewhere else. So you know, in Latino culture, they're typically much more willing to be in your face, mm -hmm. um, but it, it varies country to country. So if you set up a room and let's just, you know, lay out a couple examples here, we are very used to a university setup where you walk into a room and there's a stage and all the seats in the auditorium are in perfect straight lines with aisles, right? Mm -hmm. But if you walked into an auditorium and the stage was in the middle, and it was surrounded by seats going out in a circle on all sides, you'd be like, okay, something different is getting ready mm -hmm. to happen here, mm -hmm. right? 
or if you walked into a room and it literally was just a circle and there's no front or back, um, as we're all equal, we're all in one circle and there's you know, 20, 30, 40 seats, um, that's going to be a different use of space. And that's telling you something about what's getting ready to happen. If you walk into a room and it's laid out with a bunch of desks, you know, tables, and there's two or three chairs at every table, that's signaling to you, oh, we're going to get some work done here, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's not always possible. I love having that set up because I love what it says and I love what, that it gives people space to set up their computer and their books and really dig in and learn. But you know, it takes a lot of space to do that for 500 people. <laughs> so, right, right. He, and so there's a certain point where you just can't do that. Um, so that's what I mean is like, you're signaling what kind of behavior um, is welcome in this place. Um, are things really tight together? Is there space for people to sit down and breathe? So, you know, uh, we talked about connections. So are there places for people to sit down and have those conversations? Do you, if you can, do you have some couches, um, some comfortable places? Do you at least have smaller and larger tables? Do you have, you know, we call them high boys or high tables um, where they can put down their drink and stand up and have a conversation. Are you creating spaces for that? Or is it just, you know, very efficient and we've maximized the space. And the only thing that you're going to find is learning and sponsors. Um, how you organize the space, and that includes what you do with colors and lights and graphics and, you know, where your people are, all plants. those things. Yeah, do you have live plants? Do you have fake plants? Do you have no plants? Um, you know, all those things affect what people perceive about the event. And, and many of them, are again, are nonverbal. You know, on that scale of nonverbal, there's 12 different communication styles and nonverbal or in verbal, or actually in communication, and only two of them are verbal. 10 of them are nonverbal and then mm -hmm. we're talking about them space and color and sound and all these things. One last question about that. Again, back to the culture, but you may have touched on this with the, the, the bricks and mortar, but I wanted to ask you to say more about how events undermine powerful moments by focusing on logistics instead of transformation. So it, logistics obviously are important. We have to focus on logistics and you need people on the team that are there to cross the T's and dot the I's and make sure everything is done right. But if it's not done with a goal of why are people even coming here in the first place? You know, what is the experience they hope to have? What do they <laughs> Those first like? things we talked about, right? Yeah. If, if we aren't keeping that in view, we can end up getting so focused on the logistics that we lose sight of why we're here. And now we just have a really well-run event but no one's really changed and say, wow, that was a really great, well-run event. And I've, I've heard that compliment before. And I'm like, hmm, so is that good or is that bad? Would it be better if we were a little <laughs> bit sloppy, but they feel like they were changed? Obviously you want both, but you know, if you had to choose, which do you want? You know, and I think we want people to walk away changed and wanting to come back, obviously. Um, if you're in a repetitive event where it's good to get people coming back. Renewals are an important signal that you've done a good job. Um, if you're a one and done event, that's a whole different thing. Um, and I don't know if those exist, but I'm sure they do in some context. Um, so. right. Yeah. But I think that one of the great questions to ask before an event or even thinking about it is to say, 
how do we want to transform the attendees? How do we want them to change or, or be changed? Because it seems like, you know, strategy versus tactics, people always jump to the tactics. And they, I think they probably also jump to the logistics. Yeah. Uh, so uh, another ingredient is uh, just a couple others before we, we wrap up here, but um, daggone it. This, uh, I, I don't think I'd read too many. I, don't, I think I'd read one other book about events. So this was um, very interesting for me. Another ingredient is serendipity. So explain what that is and why it is so important at an event and how, uh, how you can create more of it or uh, ruin it. So again, serendipity is one of those things that you can't create. When I, in 2017, the first title of this book was how to make time stand still. And that, that to me is like serendipity at its best. Mm -hmm. And I realized within about three months of working on it, that that was an impossible book to write because it's impossible to make time stand still unless your name is G-O-D. So, <laughs> but it was a concept in your book that was it's very in the interesting. Book. So, yeah. yeah, so I, I realized it's just a concept. It's not, I can't make that the overarching principle because make serendipity and making time stand still is something you have to be open to. Now, I've got a book on my shelf by David Adler who founded BizBash and it's called Harnessing Serendipity. And through a series of, I think, 80-some conversations, he has found some themes of things that we can do to um, increase the likelihood of serendipity, you know, whether it's jazz musicians like myself. Sometimes when we get together as jazz musicians, something happens that's extraordinary, that's not just the usual gig, but it, it doesn't happen every time. And so you're looking for those moments and you live for those moments to happen. And so at a conference, I think we create conditions for it by, again, if we can address those enemies we talked about earlier, eliminate those the best that we can, and distraction is a huge one. And then if we can increase the likelihood of those good connections that we've talked about already, and if we can set the table and say, look, um, like one of my grad school professors said, 15 minutes, you never know when 15 minutes will change your life is what he said. And if you go into an event or a conversation like you are having right now with this expectation of, you know, I may have a conversation today that could change my life. Mm -hmm. I don't know when it's going to happen. I don't know where it's going to happen, but I want to be open to it. And I want to have my eyes open to it. So, you know, I always start my event and I challenge the staff to say, what's, what's one thing or two or three things that you would love to see happen over the next week while you're here? Get them to write it down, get them to share it with somebody. And I, I remember the event very clearly, and I think it was 2018 when I did that. And within um, the first half day, all three things that I had written down and expressed had happened. Hmm. And I wasn't even looking for it because I go into an event thinking, this is not for me. I, I did that exercise because I asked everybody else to do it. And I'm like, well, I should do it too. But I didn't really have very high expectations. And to watch all three happen, and if I hadn't written them down, I would have noticed it. And I wouldn't. And so I think that's part of it. Is, oh, so it wasn't an event you were necessarily attending. You were oh, le I was leading in charge it. of it. Yeah. yeah it, was, oh, okay. it was a social media marketing world. I was in oh, charge of it. Okay. And I saw these things happen. And so a big part of serendipity for me is letting people, giving people permission to look for it, knowing what you're looking for. If we create the space where we're encouraging people and allowing people to be fully engaged and present, then cool things are going to happen. It could mm -hmm. be 
that learning that happens in a session. It could be that conversation they have in the hallway. It could be in the bathroom. It could be standing in line for lunch. Like mm-hmm. it could be the elevator at the hotel. Like if you go in with this expectation of, you know what, there's a lot of really cool people here. These are smart people in the industry. Every person here has something that is worth hearing. And I'm going to go in and I'm just going to be open and available and encouraging and listening. And if I do that, serendipity is going to happen somewhere along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's kind of what I'm talking about. When I think back to a lot of the events I've been to, I would be pressed to remember what all the sessions were about or the keynotes, but I remember much more vividly the conversations I've had with people while standing in line or uh, sitting next to them. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, well, let's go to the last part about the recipe. Yes. And you write that so far, and this is page 161, so far in this book, we've talked about all the ingredients needed to create a memorable experience. I've intentionally resisted the temptation to give you a recipe. Why is that? Because there's not one recipe. Oh! (laughs) And you need to make your own. You need to make your own, and it all starts with that strategy that we talked about. Who is it you're trying to serve, and what is is the experience you want them to have? How are they going to come out at the end? And, you know, I talk in the book about my interview with Josh Allen, who's in St. Louis with this uh, companion bakery, I think it's called. And, you know, every customer that he works with, and he usually is working with chain restaurants and grocery stores and helping them craft a unique bread for a unique purpose. And he starts with, well, let's describe the experience that you're trying to create. And he might spend a year working with them until he gets the recipe just right. And I think as event organizers, every event we produce has to have that same thread. Now, I'm producing the same event year number 11 coming up. So there's certain things that are a given, but our event has changed since 2013. It's not the same event that it was. Our customer is not the same person. Their goals when they come are not the same. And so we continually are making adjustments to our recipe, so to speak. And now I've got different cooks in the kitchen not all the same people are on the team. So I've got to train people. And that means I've got some different skills with the chef team. Um, and we've got a different recipe that we're trying to create. So you could look at my recipe and say, that won't work for us. And you're right. It won't. Right. So your book doesn't give someone a fish. It teaches them how to fish and to, yes. to mix the metaphors even further. But hey, you know, bread and fish, huh? Okay. Hey, there's something there. <laughs> yeah. Let me just ask uh, three real quick questions before we wrap up here that I just, I couldn't resist. Page 184. This is about being different. You're right. Have you noticed how many people claim to have the answer on how to stand out in a busy world? Most of them are just teaching you to be a little bit better, louder, or different from your competition. You're essentially still playing the same game. It's like prepackaged bread companies competing with each other. It's all bread but none of them can compete with a high-quality loaf of artisan bread. And then in that section, and we don't have time to go into all this, you talk about the ways to do that is, you know, you understand your competition, you look for inspiration in unexpected places, um, combine the known and the unknown, and consider what's unique about you, what, what advantages. But the last one I want to ask you about, which is asking what industry you are really in. Could you explain that last one, what you what you mean and and how to discern what industry you're really in, which isn't what a lot of people may be thinking. 
Well, let's start with, I talk in this section a fair amount about the Savannah Bananas. And mm-hmm. one of the things that Jesse Cole realized in his journey, and if you don't know the banana story, go look him up. Um, there's lots of people who've written about it. but I'll include he, links to both his interviews uh, so people can check that oh, out. Oh, has he been on your show already? Yeah. Oh, good, good, good. So he, he discovered that we're not just a baseball team. We're actually not in the sports industry. We're in the entertainment industry mm-hmm. because the primary reason people are coming. So all of a sudden when he says, oh, we're in the entertainment industry, well, he's competing with Disney. He's competing with WWE. He's competing with Netflix. Like that changes how you view yourself and who you're competing against. And so, you know, social media examiner, we realized that, you know, we aren't just competing with other social media blogs. We're competing with all the places that people go for information. So we're competing with Wall Street Journal and Time, and we're competing with other news sources. Um, we're competing with universities. Like, where do people go learn? You know, it changes the way you look mm-hmm. at what you do if you frame up what industry are you really in, which is defined by what's the goal of your business. And, you know, as an event, you know, everybody has a choice of where to go, right? So today we're recording on 1230 my time. I have choices of all the things I can do with this time, which are defined by what is my mission um, with what I want to do. And I appreciate you spending it with me and my listeners. Oh, well, absolutely. (laughs) But you know, you as a listener are choosing to be here and not somewhere else. And that's being defined by the goals that you have for your time and for your life. And when people choose to go to an event, they're choosing to go to that event and not another event, but your event is promising something that is also being promised by a lot of other places. And it's not just other events. Like they could stay home, read a book about it. They could go watch a YouTube video about it. They could, you know, X, Y, Z. There's a lot of ways they could put together their own solution. So they're looking to you to make it the easiest possible that combines a lot of their common goals together. But you have to recognize, you know what? I'm competing against YouTube. That's a tough battle. But what does YouTube, what do we have that YouTube doesn't? Relationships, the right people in the industry coming together. So if you understand like what industry am I really in, it's going to help you get focused on what are the unique things that you can do that help you to stand out against those players that you might not normally think about. It also brings to mind one of the most famous Harvard Business Review articles from 1960 by Theodore Levitt called Marketing Myopia, mm. which I'll include a link to. And it he talked about how not understanding what business you're actually in can kill you. And he talked about, in that particular article, the railroad business. They thought they were in the railroad business. But they were actually in the business of getting people and things from point A to point B, and they missed out on uh, uh, freight, you know, air cargo. They missed out on uh, trucking. They thought they were just in the railroad business. One other uh, quick question for all those people who listen. There seem to be a lot of salespeople who listen to the show, or at least they're very uh, vocal. Uh, And I wanted a quote from page 189. He said, do you ever wonder – If the decisions you're making as an event organizer impact sales, in many organizations, event planning is separate from marketing, so there can seem to be a disconnect. I felt this way for many years until I had this revelation. Can you share with us that revelation? Producing a great event is the best form of ongoing marketing. Make the case. Yeah, so... If people are going to come back to an event, 
it's because they've had a great experience. They've had, you know, it's not, not necessarily it made them happy, maybe, but they've learned something that was significant. They developed some significant relationships. They want to go back and see those people. They realized the value of what they got out of it was much greater than the expense that went into it. And so the better job I do of, of facilitating a great experience for as many people as possible, the more likely it becomes that they're going to say, yes, I'm coming back. And word of mouth marketing, I'm going to tell my friends they should come back too. There you go. I just thought that was so interesting. Producing a great event is the best form of ongoing marketing, but you have to produce a great event. (laughs) So Phil, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Start with the end in mind, who your customer is and what does their journey look like. Uh, I think if you do nothing else from this book, you're designing the experience with that customer journey in mind. And so you're looking at every step of the way and you're planning for each of the key moments along that journey. Excellent. Excellent. You know, businesses just can't go wrong if they start with their customers. And yet it seems to be such a problem uh, for folks to just talk to their customers and, and, and get insights from them. So keep trying. So let's give the listener one thing to do today. What to, to put in action one of the ideas from your book. Here's what I would encourage you to do. Look at your most recent event you produced or the event you have coming up and identify one thing that might be boring about that event. Might be something that, you know, people are going to say, man, that's boring. Like, you know, standing in line or whatever it might be. If you want to grab... Maybe you could post a list of those things in your uh, show notes that I put in the book Um, (laughs) as just a prompter. Identify something that you know is boring about your event and reimagine how that could be something that is at least not boring, you know, and maybe is even a highlight of the event. So just take one thing. You don't have to reinvent everything, but what if you could reinvent that registration experience. Like for me, that's one of the most awkward moments. People Uh go through the line, they get their badge, they um, get their bag of stuff, and then they're left there saying, now what? What if that wasn't the feeling they had? What if it's like, oh, now I'm here and there's people ready to take them into the next level. Uh What would that look like for your event? Reimagine that. Great advice. So Phil, looking back, uh, what books have most inspired your working career? Well, definitely Power of Moments that I've already um, mentioned has been a significant one along the way. If you had cameras on, you would see that I've got hundreds of books. It's hard for me to pick just one. Um, I am a man of the Bible, so that definitely has had a profound effect. But there, there are so many others that it's hard to pick just any others. But Power of Moments probably was the most significant in the development of this book. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, other authors have mentioned the Bible as well, so <laughs> you're not the only one. So are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? Well, definitely recommend any of the books by Jesse Cole. Um, mm-hmm. Fans First is outstanding. Um, I should probably have put that in the same conversation, but I got that after I wrote my book. He's got a third book out called Banana Ball. Banana Ball. Yeah, I haven't mm-hmm. read that one yet. Um, but there's another book I was just given that I'm really excited for. It's called The Thought Leader's Practice by Matt Church. Oh. And um, I'm really excited to dig into that, to understand, like, as a thought leader, how do I build my own influence and in business around that? That's one that is top of my list right now and excited to dig into. Interesting. Yeah. From uh, 2016. Yeah, I'm looking Probably it up. So. I look these up as I as I hear them, including some of the others that you that you mentioned. So, uh, 
There is also some bonus material Can you uh, that, at your website that I'll include a link to. Can you tell folks what the, what's there for them? Well, the bonus material comes if you buy the book because you have to get the secret code inside the book. But if you would like to get the chapter that I didn't get to include in the book all about community, then just go to filmershawn.com forward slash sign up. Mm-hmm. No spaces, no hyphens, just sign up. Uh, just like it sounds, and you'll get a chance to sign up for my newsletter. But more importantly, you'll get a chance to download that free ebook um, with that extra chapter that is bonus material. Well, terrific. Well, anyone that's uh, doing events or associated with events, I don't see how they can afford not to read this book. And at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything, including all the books, uh, Phil's site, his LinkedIn profile, his Twitter account. Folks, please do me a big favor. Reach out to Phil and thank him for being a guest on the show. Congratulate him on this phenomenal book and send him a message. Let him know you heard it. Who knows? You know, he may write another book and he's going to be deciding, hmm, which podcast should I come back on? And guests on the show, you know, even they're all they're all a big deal like Phil, they really do enjoy hearing from, from folks. They have a lot of patience. Look who they put up with as the host of the show. And if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like Apple Podcasts, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on the show notes link. The book is Unforgettable, The Art and Science of Creating Memorable Experiences. The author is Phil Mershon. Phil, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Doug. closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who've left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the entrepreneur, author, and motivational speaker Jim Rohn, who said, formal education will make you a living self-education will make you a fortune.